You know, I think one of the hardest things that we have to deal with in life is waiting. None of us like to wait. You know, in fact, waiting is a difficult thing. Even when we're little kids, it starts with waiting, like how long do we have to be in the car? How long before Christmas? And as we get older, waiting is not easier either. Waiting's often a really difficult part of our life. And so it's no doubt that in the Bible, a lot of times people will say to God, how much longer? Or how much longer do we have to wait? One of the famous authors in the Bible who asked the question, how long is David? Quite frequently, he would say, how long, O Lord? And especially in Psalm 13, David cries out to God and says, how much longer do I have to wait for my deliverance? I want to talk about waiting today. And I also want to talk about faith today. And I think waiting is something more than just something that we have to do, we have to endure. But waiting is actually an act of warfare. Waiting is actually part of spiritual warfare. Because so often we find ourselves while we are waiting, and while we are anticipating, or we are yearning for something to happen, that's almost a great opportunity that the enemy takes advantage of us and comes in and says to us, do you really think God's going to answer you? It's often in our times of waiting where the enemy comes to us and tries to get us to doubt our faith or to doubt the goodness of God. That's why I say waiting is often a place of warfare, because that's when the enemy likes to take real strong advantage of us. As I told you, and I've been saying all throughout this year, this year we're talking about three different subjects. We're talking about spiritual gifts, spiritual formation, and spiritual conflict. Today I want to talk about spiritual formation as well as spiritual conflict. I want to talk about faith. But I don't know if you can adequately talk about faith if you're not talking about conflict. Because so often waiting is a time where the enemy tries to take such good advantage of us. Now you might be thinking, well, if we're going to talk about spiritual conflict, what is a good definition of spiritual conflict? I probably could come up with maybe a dozen or two definitions of spiritual conflict. But today I want to just give you a one-verse definition of spiritual conflict. You have to go to the book of Matthew. You remember in the book of Matthew, the disciples go to Jesus and they say, would you teach us how to pray? Now that's an interesting question that these young men would say to Jesus, would you teach us how to pray? These were good Jewish boys. They grew up in the synagogue. They knew how to pray. They probably had more lessons in prayer than they knew what to do with. But they say to Jesus, would you show us how to pray? And I think we wonder why. Why would they ask Jesus? They knew how to pray. See, I think what happened to these disciples, they watched Jesus before and after he prayed. And I think they saw what happened to Jesus when he prayed. They saw the transformation in Jesus, and they thought, I want that to happen to me. Because we need to remember that the Bible tells us that Jesus had to deal with every single temptation that we've had to deal with. That's a lot of temptations that that man had experienced on a daily basis. That man was busy every single day submitting to God and resisting the temptations that came against him. My guess is there's probably times worth a day that Jesus was probably like, this is pretty hard. This is pretty complicated. And I'm sure that those disciples saw Jesus having to sweat it out some days, and they probably thought, wow, but you know what happens to Jesus? He gets a lot coming against him, and he withdraws for a while, and he prays, and he comes back, and he's a completely different person. And I think the disciples were saying, you know what? I want that to happen to me. I want there to be such a transformation in me when I'm under stress that the people around me say, wow, what just happened? 
Because we know Jesus continued to be infused with the power of the Holy Spirit every time he cried out to God. So Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, and Jesus teaches them the Lord's Prayer, and I think probably all of you have heard that a time or two. But there's one very interesting sentence in that. There's one very interesting verse in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus teaches them and says, you pray this way, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus teaches his disciples, you need to pray that God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Now you think about that verse for a second or two. What Jesus is saying to his disciples is, you know what? God's will is not always done on earth. His will is always done in heaven, but his will is not always done on earth. And part of your job, your job is to pray that God's will is done on earth. That's part of the warfare that we experience. That is the spiritual conflict that we run into on a daily basis. Praying that God's perfect will in heaven is done here on earth. And that is a place of warfare. That is a spiritual place of conflict. Because as we go forth praying God's will done on earth, we have an enemy who says, I don't want that to happen. And he's constantly resisting us, constantly resisting our prayers. And so we continue the good fight as ambassadors of Jesus Christ to say, I'm going to continue to pray. I'm going to pray that God's perfect will is done on earth. And I'm also not going to be caught up in the schemes of the enemy while I pray. Because we know that God has a perfect will and we also know that the enemy has a will. And he's always trying to get each of us to believe his will. And sometimes we have to stand back and say, no, I'm not going to submit to the plans of the enemy, but I'm going to grow strong in the Lord. But conflict's hard. Conflict is hard, and it's tiring, and waiting is hard, and it's tiring. My guess is every single one of you here or listening to me are waiting for at least one thing. And you know what happens while you wait. The enemy likes to say to you, why do you think God's going to do that for you? Do you really think that you heard God, that God's leading you in that direction? The enemy comes up with every little excuse in the book, and he wears us down. I mean, listen to what David said in Psalm 13. David's crying out to God and saying, how much longer do I have to wait for my restoration? And in verse 4 of Psalm 13, David says, don't let my enemies gloat, saying, we have defeated him. Don't let them rejoice at my downfall. David understood exactly the consequences of what happens while you wait, that you have an enemy that tries to take advantage of you. That's why waiting is so hard. That's why waiting is so difficult. But you can blame it on your brain. It's not your fault, it's your brain. Our brains are wired to predict the future. Our brains are wired to know what's going to happen next. Our brains do not like uncertainty. That's just the way your brain's wired. One of the best psychologists in the field, a Christian man, is Dr. Kurt Thompson. I love this man and I love his writings. He says that our brains are one big anticipation machine. Our brains are one big anticipation machine. That means all day long our brains are thinking, what's coming next? What's going to happen next? Our brains are always anticipating, how long is this guy going to preach? When do we have lunch? Our brains are anticipating, can I make it through this whole service while I have to go to the bathroom? Do I got to leave now or can I make it here? As you leave here a little later on, your brains are going to have to anticipate, how fast is that car coming down the street? Do I have time to pull out and go on the road ahead of them? Our brains are constantly thinking, whoa, what does this weather look like? What's tomorrow going to look like? Our brains want to know what's going to happen in the future. Yeah. 
And one of the best ways that you throw a person off is unpredictability. I think that's why the world was such a hot mess during COVID, because nobody knew when was it going to be over. When can we take our mask off? When can we go to the store? When can we go back to work? And what happens to people with unpredictability? They get a little bit controlling. If you can't lean back and say, hey, you know what, God, I'm trusting you, you get a little bit controlling. And I think that's why so many people came off the edge during COVID, because they couldn't know what the future was. Our brains crave to know what's coming next. We are neurologically wired to anticipate the future. We're neurologically wired to want to know what's next. And I think that's why prophecy is so important. Because our brains want to know what's going to come next. What does God have for us next? Our brains want to be encouraged. They want to find comfort, but they want to know what is God's plan for us next so they can anticipate the future. Dr. Kurt Thompson, he says in his research, he will show if a person goes to the doctor and they break their leg really bad, and you tell a person, you know what, you're going to have a lot of pain for six weeks. Now, a person might not like to be diagnosed with pain for six weeks, but they find relief in knowing, okay, for six weeks, it's going to be bad. It's the middle of June. By the end of July, I'll have to, but you know, August, I'll be okay. They like that. But if you go to a doctor and the doctor says to you, yeah, you broke your leg, I don't know how long it's going to hurt. That unpredictability is harder to bear than if a doctor said to you, you know what, it's going to hurt the rest of your life. Because you have the certainty, okay, I can just plan on that. Every day, the rest of my life, my leg's going to hurt. But you say, I don't know how long it's going to last. That's actually very difficult for people. The more certainty that you can give a person, the easier it is for them to go through life. The easier it is for them to manage life. So when you're, in, so when you're a little anxious waiting, you just blame it on your brain. Your brain just wants to know. And I think that's why David would cry out so much to God saying, how much longer? Because David knew either God had to answer him or God had to give him that complete comfort and peace to know that while he waits, he'll be okay. We know David prayed a lot, how long? But the Apostle Paul also teaches us in Philippians 4 verse 6. He says it this way. He says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for what he has done. Then you'll experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your heart and mind as you live in Christ Jesus. Other translations say he'll give you the peace that passes all understanding. I think the Passion Translation translate this verse better than any other ones I've read. In the Passion Translation, they say, Tell God every detail of your life. I think that's what Paul's getting at in this verse. You need to tell God every single detail of your life if you want to experience the peace that passes understanding. And I think that's hard for us to imagine. How would you imagine telling God the details of your life? How do you pray in such a way that you can tell God all the details of your life? Because I think sometimes, if I personally, I have a tendency to tell God what I need. I really don't go into the details of my life of what I'm experiencing right now. But that's what Paul's telling us to do. I want us to look at Psalm 55 today to see how David prayed. How David poured out his heart before God and told God every single thing that he needs. Now I love Psalm 55 because Psalm 55 gives us direct access into the private life of David. What was it like to be David? What was it like to pray like David? 
We read Psalm 55, but in order to understand Psalm 55, you really have to understand 2 Samuel 16. Because Psalm 55 is the prayer that David prayed while he was experiencing 2 Samuel 16. 2 Samuel 16, that's an interesting verse or chapter. In the chapter before, we have, you know, King David. I think a lot of you know that he uh, kind of messed up on his marriage a little bit. He had an affair, plotted against to kill her husband. He got in big trouble for all that, as you can imagine. God sent a prophet to him to kind of correct David and to set him back on course. But there's something interesting that happened with David. David sinned really bad against God, but God never withdrew his favor from David. God continued to bless David. God never said to David, you're no longer king because of your sin. God said, David, you can remain a king, but you're going to have to go through some restoration while you're a king. But David's young son, Absalom, had a different idea. He thought it would be better if his father was just killed. So Absalom hunted down his father and had planned to attack him and kill him. And so it pretty much divided David's kingdom. David's men were either going to be committed to David or they're going to go and they're going to go work for Absalom and they're going to hunt down David. So in chapter 16, David's on the run for his life. Absalom and his men, they are running all to get David to kill him. And David has a few of his mighty men left and they're trying to protect David. And chapter 16 is a very interesting chapter. Because in chapter 16, you see some of David's friends betray him. David's going through a hard time. His son wants to kill him. David is repenting before God, but his son wants to kill him. And now his friends are going to betray him. So in the first four verses of chapter 16, one of David's old friends, Zimba, he comes up with a complete lie to David. He lies to David about his friend Mephibosheth. And, and this servant of David says, yeah, you know what? Your, your friend Mephibosheth, he now joined Absalom. He wants to kill you too. A complete lie. So here David is already running from his son. Now he's dealing with betrayal from one of his servants. And then in chapter 6, another one of David's servants comes up. But this guy comes up and he starts throwing dirt at David. He's throwing dirt at him. He's throwing stones at him. He's cursing David. He says, David, you need to die. This man wanted was out to kill David. And what is David's reply? That's okay. Let him keep throwing the stones. Let him keep throwing the dirt. And it's interesting because one of David's servants that was with him, that was still loyal to David, he said to David, you know what? People don't need to treat you like that. Nobody treats the king by throwing stones at him or dirt at him. I'm going to kill that man for you. And David says, no, don't kill him. He says, don't kill him. He said, maybe God is going to use these curses to bring correction in my life. And maybe if God doesn't want to allow these curses, then maybe he'll bless me instead. And you look at David and you're like, wow, that, that's a pretty remarkable thing. You got your army here. They could totally take out this guy that's betraying you. Take him out. And David says, no, let him do it. Maybe through this process, God will bring some correction to my life and maybe God will be good enough to actually bless me. And I think we read chapter, that, that chapter in Samuel and we think, wow, David, that, that's, that's pretty brave of you. How did you get the courage to just say, no, let him keep throwing stones? I mean, the guy actually kind of chased David out of town by throwing stones and dirt at him. David just kept on going out of town and went by the Jordan River to rest. You think, David, how did you have that fortitude to put up with that? 
And I think in our culture, we would say, well, David probably had the personality profile that he could put up with a lot of things. And maybe that's partly true. But I think in Psalm 55, you understand how David could say, let him keep throwing stones at me. Because in Psalm 55 is an illustration how David told the Lord every single detail of his life. David held nothing back. So I want to close today by looking at Psalm 55 and going through these verses and seeing how did David pour out his heart before God? How did God, David tell God everything about his life? Because you find in the process of David telling God about his, everything going on, you see that David's faith continued to increase. Now it's easy to look at Psalm 55 or any of the Psalms. Psalms are basically David's prayer book. Basically, David wrote out his prayers and somebody got a copy of them and put them in the Bible. But it's a glimpse into how David prayed. And I think sometimes there's a tendency to say, uh, Psalm 55 really doesn't apply to me. I mean, this guy's running for his life. His son's trying to kill him. He had an affair with a neighbor and uh, he's betrayed by all his friends. Uh, that's not really relevant to my life. I think that's the wrong way to look at the Psalms, especially Psalm 55. That's the wrong perspective to have. I think the perspective that we need to have when we look at Psalm 55 is we need to say, now look, if David found comfort in praying this way, and he's being running for his life, all of his friends are betraying him, he's being cursed, people are throwing rocks and stones at him, if he finds comfort in this kind of prayer, how much more comfort would we find in this type of prayer for our problems that are small in comparison to David? I think Psalm 55 is an invitation saying, look, you probably don't have it as bad as David. But this kind of praying worked for David. So if your biggest problem right now is wondering how you're going to pay for the electric bill, you're going to find a lot of comfort in this kind of prayer. That's the perspective that we have to have when we read through the Psalms. They're powerful. So the first thing that David does, I'm going to go through a list of how he prays, and I got a little help from this from the study resources by explaining the Bible, so cheated a little bit here, and, and then Becky adapted the list, so I'm just kind of repeating other people from the rest of the message. But the first thing that David does is he calls attention to the crisis. He addresses God in the first two verses and says, listen to my prayer, O God, do not ignore my cry for help. Please listen and answer me, for I'm overwhelmed by my troubles. I like the way David prays. He's honest. This isn't a little formula that David has. You know, I was raised in the Christian church and, and school. They always give us these little formulas that we have to do. Maybe some of you like those kind of formulas. I like David. Let's get raw let's get honest, and let's get vulnerable and say how I'm really feeling. I don't think you need to go through a little set ritual. I think God wants you to come honestly. And I love the fact that David says, would you please answer my prayers? He says, look, God, I'm a little worried that you're going to ignore me. David says exactly what's on his heart. How many of you, I know I have been that place where I'm praying and I wonder, God, are you really going to answer me? Are you going to hear me? Is anybody listening to me besides five feet from where I'm at? And David is bold enough to say that to God. Saying, God, that's my feeling right now that you're not even going to answer me. 
that you're not even going to listen to me. That's a place of respect that David's starting out with. He's being vulnerable, saying, God, I need help right now, and I'm fearing that you're not listening to me. And I think every single one of us, including myself, when you're waiting a long time, you wonder the same thing that David was bold enough to say. God, I don't think you're really paying attention to me. And so then in the next verse, in verse number three, David says, he goes and he explains the problem to God. He tells God the problem. He says, my enemies shout at me, making loud and wicked threats. Remember, they're throwing stones and rocks at David. They're bringing trouble on me. They angrily hunt me down. See, David just telling God his feelings again, that wasn't enough. David had to express before God what the problem is he's facing. So David says to God, this is exactly what's going on right now. I think sometimes we wonder, well, why do you have to tell God that he already knows your problem? He's watching over you, David. Why waste his time? It's God's got a relationship. He wants to know exactly what's going on with you. He wants you to hear you telling him what's going on. That's why God kept Psalm 55 in the Bible. To say to you, you can pray this way. Pray this way. Tell me exactly what the problem is. Tell me what you're experiencing. And then in verse 4 and 5, David goes on and he tells how the problem is affecting him. It's not merely enough to say, hey, they're chasing me down. He says in verse 4, my heart pounds in my chest. The terror of death assaults me. Fear and trembling overwhelm me. I can't stop shaking. That's pretty bold of David. To say to God, look, my chest is pounding. To me, that sounds like he's saying, I'm having a panic attack. I'm having a panic attack. I'm scared. They're trying to kill me. I mean, you read 2 Samuel 16, and David looks like the strong military man. Yeah, I'll let him throw stones at me. I don't care. But when he gets before God, he's like, I'm scared. I'm shaking. My chest is pounding. See, there's time to put up a good front and say, yeah, throw stones at me. I don't care. But David had to go to that place of intimacy to get strength from God. You can't fight the warfare unless you have a place of intimacy like David had. And David poured out his heart and said, I'm scared. I don't know if I've ever prayed that way. I had to say to myself this week, have I prayed that way? Where I really say to God, this is how I feel about you. This is how I feel about me. And I'm really scared right now. I'm actually panicking a bit. And David is bold enough to say it before God. I love that part. That's a raw relationship. That's how I want my kids to talk to me. I want them to tell me exactly what's going on. I want them to tell me, how are you feeling about it? And then David goes on in verse 6 and 7 and 8, and he gets even bolder. He admits that he wants to escape. And he talks about it. Now, maybe I'm the only one in the room, but I've thought of my plan of escape a time or two when life gets a little pressure. I don't usually admit it to anybody. I don't even admit it to God. And here David says, Oh Lord, if I only had wings like a dove, then I would fly away and rest. I would fly far away to the quiet of the wilderness. How quickly I would escape far from this wild storm of hatred. David says exactly what I'd do. If I had wings, I'd fly away. I'd get out of here is what David is saying. He's bold enough to tell God, I am so scared, I want to get away. 
how do I get out? How many of us have thought the same thing? If I had wings, if I had a little bit more money is probably where I would go. then I would be out of here. I would do something different. I could get myself out of my own situation, but David's honest before God. I'm kind of stuck here. It's up to you, because there's no place I can go. But I love the fact that David just admitted it right before God, had the courage to say, this is my escape plan. And then David goes on in verse 9 through 11, and he humbly demands that God frustrates the plans of the enemy. This is where you see some warfare coming on, where David says, Confuse them, Lord. Frustrate their plans. For I see violence and conflicts in the city. Its walls are patrolled day and night against invaders. But the real danger is the wickedness within the city. Everything's fallen apart. Threats and cheating are rampant in the streets. And David says, God, would you frustrate their plans? That's a good prayer. God, would you frustrate the plans that the enemy has against me? But now a little note of caution here. We have to remember that Paul tells us in Ephesians, our war is not against flesh and blood. It's against the principalities and powers of darkness. People are never our enemies. Satan and his demon are our enemies. In the New Testament, it tells us to love other people, to bless those that curse us, to show compassion for people. So when David is praying, confuse their plans, that's okay. You're praying God confuse the plans that people have against you. But we have to do that from a heart of compassion. I think it's safer sometimes to say, God, would you confuse the plans that the evil one, Satan, has against me? Because we know ultimately when bad people are doing bad stuff, it's usually they're just doing what Satan's inspired them to do anyway. So we're praying that God would confuse the plans that the enemy has given to people to carry out. So I think that's a practical way how we can pray Psalm 9. But it's a good thing to pray that any plan that the enemy has against your life would be confused. And it would be dismantled. Because ultimately, David wants himself to be protected. And he wants the city to be protected. David's saying here, look, these people are coming into the city and they're causing havoc everywhere. So that's part of David's responsibility is pray that God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. So he's saying, God, would you confuse that plan so that ultimately your plan can come forth? And then in verse 12 through 14, David goes through another lament. Another where he's pouring out his heart before God and he says, it's not even, it's not an enemy who taunts me. I could bear it. It's not my foe who so arrogantly insults me. I could have hidden from them. Instead, it is you, my equal, my companion and my close friend. See, after all David's laments, he pours out before God. The people that are doing this to me were once my friends. Verse 14, what good fellowship we once enjoyed as we walked together in the house of God. So suddenly David's pouring out his heart. This would have been okay. I could have dealt with it. But the people that are cursing me, the people that have it out for me, they're my friends. These were people that we once enjoyed fellowship with. That's harder. I mean, David's taken it from his son. He's taken it from his friends. But you know what's also interesting in this section of Scripture? That while David is praying to God, he starts addressing 
his former friends as if he was talking directly to them. While David is praying, he says, you know, instead it is you, my equal, my companion, my close friend. That seems kind of strange that while David is praying, it's almost like he's talking to his friends. So I think sometimes there's something cathartic, there's something healing of the process that David went through. In prayer, he's like, this is what I would say to my friends. This is what I say to them. That's David's way to get it off his chest. I'm frustrated these people have hurt me, but I can't go talk to them. I can't send them a letter. I can't send them an email. I can't send them a text. It would not be appropriate. It would blow up. So I'm going to tell God what I would say to them because it's going to help bring me into a little bit more healing. And I love the fact that David does that because another thing, how many of us have had imaginary conversations in our head saying, well, if I bumped into that person at Meyer, this is what I would tell them. And we get this whole conversation in our head. I'm glad a lot of you are nodding your head, so I'm not the only crazy person here. But we do that. We think, this is what I would say to them. Oh, that would be a good line to say to them. But see what David says, yeah, go ahead and do that. But tell that to God. Tell God what you would say to them. Tell God this little fantasy conversation that you would have with them. Because that's the way David found healing and wholeness, by saying that to God. And then David goes back again into his imprecatory prayers, which is another fancy word for another day, but he says, let death stalk my enemies. Let the grave swallow them alive, for evil makes its home within them. But I will call on God, and the Lord will rescue me. Morning, noon, and night, I cry out in my distress, and the Lord hears my voice. Again, this is a great prayer, but we got to remember, our war is not against flesh and blood. It's against the principalities and powers of darkness. So when you pray like this, it's important to remember we're addressing that against Satan and his legion of demons. But in this, as God, David is pouring out his heart, he's saying on one hand, look at this injustice of what's happening. But on the other hand, he's saying, but look at the justice that God is going to serve me as well. So David starts the ability to compare and contrast what bad is happening, but also what good is happening. There's some healing that's coming forth from David praying this way. He's starting, it's not just focused on all bad, 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 bad. Oh yeah, here's the other side of the justice scale. God is good to me. God's going to give me a place of escape. God's going to rescue me. And then David goes into finally starting to conclude his prayer in, in verse 18 and 19, and he says, God ransoms me and he keeps me safe from the battle waged against me. Through many, though many still oppose me, God has ruled forever and will hear and humble them. It's like David gets through all this, pours his heart out before God. He started this prayer, remember? God, are you really going to listen to me? He starts his prayer kind of challenging God, but he gets to this verse and he's like, oh yeah, I poured out my heart before you. Now God, yeah, I really do trust you. I really do have confidence that you're going to rescue me. See, David's faith grew as he prayed. I think sometimes in our formula we tell people, well, always end your prayer by saying something nice like that because that's just a nice little formula to get what you want. No, David prayed that way because his heart was transformed while he prayed before God. Dave wasn't just, David wasn't just doing a little baloney at the end of his prayer, like, well, I'll just pretend I have faith. No, his heart was transformed because he prayed and because he poured out his heart, and he knows that God is going to keep him safe. And so kind of at this point, you kind of think, okay, there should be the amen. Okay, all done. 
But then in verse 19, he picks it up kind of like, okay, oh, one more thing. One more thing. For my enemies refuse to change their ways. They do not fear God. As for my companions, the betrayal of his friends, he broke his promises. His words are as smooth as butter, but his heart is at war. His words are as smooth as lotion, but underneath are daggers. See, I kind of like this. See, sometimes we say to people, now when you pray, you pray about these things, you get done and you say amen. Now you just walk away and leave it alone. Let God deal with it. How many of you have heard people say that to you? Now just now leave it alone. You prayed about it, now stop. That ain't the model that David shows. David said amen, walked away. He's like, oh no, there's one more thing. I forgot that. I forgot that part. So he goes right back to God and says, oh, by the way, if I didn't tell you enough about my friends, here's a little bit more. Here's a little bit more. I love that fact. That's how I want somebody to have a conversation with me. That's crazy. Bunch of say amen, walk away, you're all done. No. Not at all. Thank you, Lori. He goes back and he says, God, one more thing. That's okay to do that because you know what? He went to God with it. He didn't go jabbering his mouth off with somebody else telling them. He went right back to God with that and said, hey, I got to get this off my chest. And then he comes to verse 22 and 23, and he says, Give your burdens to the Lord. He'll take care of you. He will not permit the godly to slip and fall, but you, O oh God, will send the wicked down to the pit of destruction. Murderers and liars will die young, but I am trusting in you to save me. You see this transformation of David's faith all throughout this. Starting out saying, God, are you really listening to me? Pouring out his heart of, hey, I'm starting to have some panic attacks. I'm worried about my emotional health, my mental health. Pouring out his heart about what is the problem? What do they do to him? How does he feel? And then he comes down to verse 23, and he's like, yeah, but God, you're going to take care of it. You see how his faith grew during his process of being honest with God to the point he can say, God, but you're going to take care of it. I love the way that David prayed. I love the fact that he really did tell God every detail of his life. He didn't leave anything out of what was happening in chapter 16 of 2 Samuel. He told God all about it. He surrendered to God how he feel, felt, what he was feeling like. He told God what he wanted to do. And to be honest, that's a big contrast from the way I sometimes pray, or most of the time do. I'm really good at telling God what he needs to do. But about sitting with God and telling him I'm scared, I'm panicking, I'm worried you're not going to listen to me. This is what I feel like right now. David did all those things. He poured out his heart by God, so by the end, he actually did see his faith increased. He had to wait. It wasn't over yet. I love the fact that it says in here, it says, give your burdens to the Lord, he'll take care of you. He will not permit the godly to slip and fall. It doesn't say, give your burdens to the Lord and all your problems will go away. It doesn't say, give surrender to God and you'll never have to deal with it again. Mm -mm. It says he'll take care of you. And he's not going to permit you to slip or to fall. That's encouraging. God's not going to let any of us slip and fall. You might have to continue to be tempted. Jesus continued to be tempted. 
But Jesus didn't slip and fall. The same thing that God did for Jesus is he'll do for each of us. He'll protect us so we don't slip and fall. But we have to pray like Jesus. Take that time to tell him every detail that's going on in our life. Because that's the way our faith is renewed and our confidence is restored that God's going to do it. So I'm going to close in prayer. Let's sing a song. And I'll invite any of you who want prayer to come forward and we'll pray. Or if any of you say, hey, I think I have something to share. Or there's something I want to pray from up here, you can do it. This is a nice small crowd. Don't I feel too intimidated? The world could be watching, but it's a small group today. So let me pray and let's sing a song and then let's see what the Lord's going to do. So Father, I thank you for this service. I thank you for our time together. I thank you, God, for your faithfulness to show us how to pray. Not to just say, you got to pray, but you show us how to pray. I thank you, Lord, for the illustration of how David prayed, how David really did pour out his heart. And God, you know I need to pray a little bit differently. And I'm guessing some other people in here have to change the way they pray as well. God, I thank you that you are the good shepherd and you're the Holy Spirit and that you can lead us. Lord, I pray that you transform each of us in the way that we pray so we can be like David and be bold and strong, but also humble and raw and vulnerable with you. God, I pray as we sing this final song, Lord, that you would bring transformation to each of us and to encourage us to respond to this message the way you would have us respond. God, you didn't bring us here by accident, but you brought us here for a specific purpose. So today, God, I pray that we would receive your plans in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.